would please turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We will be looking at verses 7 through 15 and 20. Chapter 11, 7 through 15 and 20. We're moving into a new section. So I will kind of give you an overview of where we're headed. And uh, next week we'll dive in, but I believe that you will be encouraged by this. Chapter 11, 7 through 15 and 20. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you. God knows I do. But what I am doing, I will continue to do so that it may cut off opportunity for those who would desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the manner about which we are boasting. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Verse 20, For you tolerate it if anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone who hits you in the face. Father, thank you for your word. Father, I pray that as we look upon this text, that we understand this is the word of God. Though it seems to be a narrative of a historical perspective, it has got great, great depth for those of us who live in the day such as this. Father, give us ears to hear that we may understand. Father, let us understand the troubles that are around us even when we don't see it. To you, my King, to my Savior, in Christ's name. Amen. We're moving through 2 Corinthians, and I told you that in chapter 10, actually, it's chapter 10 through about the end of 12, uh, it's dealing with spiritual warfare. Most people have a, um, how do I say this, a wrong view of what spiritual warfare is. We believe we got a lot of the Hollywood stuff now that we kind of look around at and, you know, we, we've seen the exorcist and all of these demons and let's go arm wrestle this and beat up Satan and poke him in the nose and weird stuff like that. Truth of the matter is, that's mysticism and it doesn't really have a biblical background to it. Okay, now listen, I want to make sure that you understand. I do believe in demons. All right. Fallen angels. The Bible teaches on them. I do not believe that they are the issue other than they are the underlying philosophy 
They are the ones who come up with these literally doctrines of demons that sway people. Right? But when I think about spiritual warfare, I'm always looking at it from, it's dealing with the mind. Man's thinking processes. Alright? That's where the battle is. Okay? So, when I read through this section, it's, it's almost as if it's a debate between the Apostle Paul and his accusers in Corinth. And if you're, if you're true to the context of 2 Corinthians, you see in chapter 7 that there was a restoration of this broken relationship between the Apostle Paul and the church in Corinth. And you got to keep it in all of this context because 1 Corinthians, you see him just blast him. Then there's a letter in between 1 and 2 Corinthians called the severe letter, which literally brought him to their knees in repentance. Then he writes 2 Corinthians because it encouraged them that they had changed. All right? So that's where you're at. But it's not until 10, 11, and 12, he just starts getting in their face. The false. Now listen, you got to understand this. <laughs> I love Paul. This letter would have been brought to the Corinthians and someone would have got up in front of the Corinthians and read this thing. Okay, so you still have these uh, false accusers sitting in the corners or whatever. And Paul starts reading, or whoever, probably Titus, would have read this to the Corinthian church. And all of these people are going to be sort of turning red. My guess. Okay, because when... <laughs> Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. <laughs> that, that, that there make everybody happy. Okay, and so what he's doing now, without being in the specific name, he is specifically calling them out. All right. When you read through this section, it almost seems like it's a historical incident. And really, really, what does it do for me and you? Well, listen, when I look at Scripture, okay, I have questions that run through my head that are always consistent. One, what in this text is true about God? Two, what is true about Christ? What is the doctrine of faith being taught in this text? Okay, how does it apply to me as a person? I, that is the framework that I read the Bible by. Okay, that don't fit here. Okay, it seems that this text is a reference of an issue that is between the Apostle Paul and his accusers. And how does that apply to me? Okay. But you can also throw probably the interaction with the church uh, of Corinth. Yet, I also am not dumb enough to say, well, if the Spirit of God put it here, therefore, it must be instructive for me. Something in here is, is, is going to work for me. So, I have to go back to my, uh, my, my continuous place of life is that I must depend on God 
to use this text in each of your hearts, uh, which I've been doing for a few years. Uh, this text, I believe, can strengthen us. I believe it can edify us. And that is my resolve to the truth of God, is that no matter what the text, it's given to us for a reason, and that reason is for our strengthening. In. I mean, right? I mean, I read my Bible for me to grow. I never read my Bible to teach. All right? I'm always reading it because it's, it's for me. I need strength. I'm not very good. Okay? Again, when we stay with the faithfulness to truth, that will guard us from seductions of speculations and lofty lies that have been lifted up by satanic forces. One of the things, I actually dealt with this with a, a believer this week that was struggling, and my simple question was this, has God said? It is amazing what we believe God has said. It's, it's stunning. Because I watch people who will say, well, but I believe this. Well, okay, but has God said? And the only way I know what God has said is to read His Word. I, I look, I remember Dr. MacArthur, it's been years ago, made a comment from the pulpit that the church has a spiritual case of AIDS. Okay, do you know what AIDS is? It, it is a immune suppression. Your body can't fight off anything is basically what, what it ends up as. Okay, and when I look at the church today, he made that statement. And of course, you do that in Southern California, you feel like you need to duck. But he made that statement and I thought, you know, I think he's right. Okay, we would look at and call it today, um, there is a lack of discernment. Okay, right? It's the same thing. I'm not discerning. Right? You know what a word is that I see, though, that people don't want to hear? See, we can, we, we can embrace a lack of discernment. Right? We, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, Sometimes I'm, I mean, but you know what I look at it as? Because it's a word that you won't embrace. Okay. The church is gullible. Okay. The church has been gullible. And I can take it back a few years when Eve was convinced that if I can't eat of it or touch it, and yet... It was pleasing to look at. Is that not the church today? It is pleasing to look at. Throughout the history of the church, the greatest damage to her is not from the outside. Do you understand that the church has absolutely no fear of atheists? Do you know that I do not have any concern whatsoever for scientific skepticism? I mean, you're going to put all of your eggs in science? Now, there's an unwavering truth. Science, they've never been wrong. 
Right? Do you see what I'm trying to get at? I mean, I don't even have to get into molecular design. I can just look at it and say, you know what? In 1972, they told me the Ice Age was coming and they got rid of leaded gas and we all got catalytic converters. And you know what? I missed the Ice Age. I was alive and I was paying attention. Okay? But it was going to be an Ice Age. Here it comes. We like to say that religious people said that the world was flat, but that's not true. Job said it was a sphere hanging in nothing. Who thought the world was flat? Science. So, you know what? Scientific skepticism is not a danger to the church. Humanism is not a danger to the church. Now listen, those are errors, and they do have the damning effect. Okay? But the truth of the matter is, they do not threaten the church. What has always threatened the church, what has always done the greatest damage to the bride of Christ, is spiritual gullibility. Okay? We can call it, the, well, I don't want to be called gullible. Okay, spiritual deception. But it's gullibility. Christians who lack discernment. Christians who lack understanding, knowledge, wisdom. I mean, remember the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. You ever read that? It's a simple text. I do not want you to be uninformed about spiritual gifts. Okay, you know what the implications of that is? Shouldn't be that big a deal, huh? Let me ask you a question. How are we doing with that today? Why? The church will be seduced by what appears to be divine truth. And if we do it in a church setting, then it must be of God, correct? If the guy's wearing a suit, he must be speaking for God, especially on a Sunday. Nobody wears a suit on Sunday. Okay, but is it divine truth? Can I hold it up to the light of Scripture and it looks good? Listen, when a people abandon truth, they don't believe in nothing. Do you understand that? They will believe in anything. You understand that? If I want to jettison truth, I will grab a hold of something else. Alright? And if you don't believe me, go do a cursory line of history. And it's always the same. Have you ever looked at church history and see where Roman Catholicism came from? Go check it out. It will actually bother you because it was the original church. But then you got guys who took up positions of power who said, you can't handle the scriptures. We can handle the scriptures. And now that we can handle the scriptures, we will become the Catholic church, which is the universal church. But where did it start out as? The true church. 
the true church. Now, I find that fascinating. Because there is a schism that has closed between Protestants and Catholics. That we can all get along because we all love Jesus and it's kumbaya. Truth of the matter is, they are teaching the doctrine of, you can't say that, Terry. It's the doctrine of demons. Yeah, but they do great things. You know, they agree with a lot of stuff that we do. I've got a book in my office. It's called The Ecumenical Jihad. And it's written by the foremost apologist of Roman Catholicism, some bishop in, um, I don't know, somewhere up in New England. If you take the first half of this book, there's nothing in that first half of that book you and I would disagree with. Nothing. It deals with our culture, how we've had a moral decline. If you read the first half of this book, you would be going, Amen, Amen, Amen. But then he wrote the second half of the book. Okay? And all of a sudden, it dawns on you, this guy ain't even on the same planet as me when it comes to theology. But you would say, well, but, but the first half of it was correct. Absolutely. Dealing with social issues, he is absolutely right on. His cure for the social issues, and that we should be, the title kind of gives it away, right? Let's all of us spiritual people get a jihad on our social condition. And you listen to the first half, you think, yeah, right on. The second half is his conclusion on how to do it, and you can't line up with that. I remembered a few years ago, it's been a number of years ago actually, we were doing, it was Amendment 11, and it wanted to remove anything in Colorado with tax-exempt status. Okay? Churches, hospitals, anything that had tax-exempt, didn't pay property taxes, let's just do away with it. And so they called all the pastors, everybody's freaking out. And they call all the pastors together. We're going to have this great big council meeting. And so I go strolling in here to listen to what they're, going, they're telling me. And I was just completely flabbergasted because here you had all of these pastors from all over Colorado sitting there. You had some priests and stuff from the Catholic Church and all the rest. They're standing there too. And there right in the middle of all of us was Planned Parenthood. Okay? And you're sitting there going, now here is an odd combination. Why? Because there's no discernment. The church has been assaulted throughout its existence, and it comes by false doctrine. It comes by deceptive lies, and it comes about just about dressed in everything, whether it be God or Christ, the gospel, the church. Uh, I cannot count the forms of sex and systems that come from the church. So, that is the history of the church. We have to be understanding that the church, at its core, is gullible. Okay? When I talk about the Bible, I can hear all kinds of unbiblical systems. Forms. I will hear people who will speak of scriptures, but never explain scriptures. Or they'll come up with a brilliant idea 
and try to find a scripture that validates their brilliant idea. Look around. Look around today, brothers and sisters, and tell me what is a successful church. And then tell me that it's biblically based. Because we look around and what we look for for success, we will never admit to. But it's what we try to do is how many people are there or what is their music? Listen, if people do not believe truth, they'll believe anything. Let me give you a, a couple of just for giggles. First Timothy, written about middle 60s. Yeah, about the middle 60s. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. All right. Now, I'm, I'm talking, now I'm not talking the 1960s. I'm talking 60 AD, in case you're trying to, this, this isn't the Grateful Dead 60s. This is uh, a little earlier. Now, do you believe the Bible? Okay, do you believe that it's, it's legitimate, it's, it's truth? Alright, okay? Alright, so what I'm about to read to you, you, what are you gonna say? Alright, it's written probably between 63 and 66 AD. Okay? Here's what the Apostle Paul tells Timothy. The Spirit explicitly says, That in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrine of demons. Got it? All right, now, if the Spirit told Paul that in 63 to 66 AD, where are we today? Okay? Because I can get into a bunch of it on the latter times. I can tell you that the latter times started at the incarnation. Okay? But that's not what I want to deal with. Because by means of hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. You believe that? Now, if he writes this in 60, you know, 63 to 66, has it gotten better? All right, let's go to his last letter. Second Timothy. Okay, this would have been written probably just before the fall of Jerusalem. So you're probably looking at 68, 69 uh, Jerusalem, the temple was destroyed in 70. So you're probably looking right around just before the collapse of, of the, uh, the, the destruction of Jerusalem. Chapter 2 of 2 Timothy. Verses 11 through 19. It is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. All right, it makes sense. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. 
Remind them of this, these things. Who? The church. Did you get that? You read that and it's a very well, you know, well, everybody knows that. Really? Then why do we have to be reminded of it? Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which are useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Hmm. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. How do you want to keep from being ashamed? Avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene among them, Hermenius and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows who are His, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Don't you find that... When I read that, this is a trustworthy statement. You know what that means? Somebody was coming in saying something else. This is an amen statement. If he died with him, we will live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also deny us. If he is, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That's a trustworthy statement. Hang your hat on it, Timothy. And remind them of these things. Okay? Now, you read that, that is, but you know, I've got Philetus and I've got Harmenes here, you know, they've, they're screwing everything up. We got worldly chatter going on. We got gossip things going on. We got empty words going on. So just keep it simple. Why? Look at chapter three, verse one. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be Lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than... Lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. Okay, Charles Spurgeon's writing on this text said, verse 2, men will be lovers of self is the sewer pipe that the rest of it pours out of. I find that fascinating. And I've had people try to explain this to me. That see, that's the way the world is. Holding to a form of godliness? No, man. That's what the church is going to grow into. 
Paul doesn't have to tell Timothy what lost people look like. Realize that in the last days, there's that phrase again, difficult times will come. Why? Because men will be lovers of self. And all the rest of it comes out of it. I mean, you can sit there holding to a form of godliness, although they deny its power. Among them are those, verses 6 and 7, among them are those who enter into the households and captivate, I didn't write this, captivate weak women weighed down with sins led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of truth. Why? The gullible. They're gullible. It's reading a pastor out of England. I'll give you his quote. Quote, the church does not have to worry seriously about atheism. Just a superstition that does not threaten religious consciousnesses of the world. Marxism sustained what was ever limited in its success it has had by promoting only by vicious policies for re-imprisonment. No, the real danger is not unbelief. The real danger is the wrong belief. Unquote. So what's killing the church in England today? Killed the church in Europe. We can believe whatever we want. And you know what? We have an adversary who's into it. I don't care what you believe, as long as it's not truth. And you know what? It is easy for you and I to sit here today and say, well, I don't have to worry about that. Really? Who founded the Corinthian church? I'm, I'm thinking that it might have had a doctrinal foundation that was probably pretty solid. What do you think? Who put the next pastor into position in Corinth? A guy named Apollos. Who was taught by Priscilla and Aquila. We're not looking to rank amateurs here, people. And yet, what happened to them? They wandered off. Listen, skepticism will not bother the church. But superstition will. The church is not bothered by the irreligious. The church is bothered by the religious. The church is not bothered by the doubter. But the church is by the deceiver. You know, every great heresy that's ever came out on the existence of the planet, do you know where it started? Seminary. Seminary. What's the seminary? That's where we teach the church leaders. I remember meeting with the professor. Well, he's not there no more. The president of Denver Sim. And he says, I've got guys coming in here. You know what seminary is? Master degree level work. He says, I've got guys coming in here who don't know the difference between the Old and the New Testament. And they actually believe that the God of the Old Testament was a meanie. And the God of the New Testament is a nice guy. They're in seminary. Master's degree work. And I just smiled at him. I said, Craig, let me tell you something. You're reaping what you sowed. Because the pulpits ain't teaching to set these people up. Church history proves it. 
over and over and over again. It has never been an external assault on Christianity that's done the church any harm. When you think about revival, what did it have to be revived of? Why did Martin Luther jump right in the middle of Rome? And it started the Protestant revival. When you see the Reformation and you hear that, all I'm thinking is that there needed to be a reform in the church. Do we understand that? Look at us today. Are we on track? It is a subtle creeping in of the deceivers. The deceivers. I look at it as saboteurs. They're going to come in and blow this thing up. However they can. Now listen, I agree that some are deceived and some are deceivers. Okay, I agree with that. But let me ask you a question. How do you spot one? Aren't they both doing the same thing? I mean, I can look at some stuff and say, hey, yeah, you know, I can see people who are teaching a self-interest gospel. Okay, it's all about you. I spot that a mile away. But you know what I've learned? There are some out there who are doing it in a completely different manner and are not bold enough to say that that's what I'm teaching. If you go to church looking for entertainment, then what do you got? All right. Did you ever ask Eli's sons what they thought about contemporary worship? You ever thought about that? I got 43 chapters in the Old Testament on how God was to be honored in his worship. I got three on creation. Which one do you suppose is more important? I've been reading Genesis. Get it? (laughs) But you see what I'm trying to get at? I look around today and it's like all I can do is shout from the mountaintop and it's for no apparent reason. They are always, always around to exploit gullible Christians. Now, nobody wants to grow up and say, I was a gullible Christian. Right? And yet, you're surrounded by them. And you know what? You are a prime target because you believe that I've set under biblical teaching, therefore I am what? What did the Corinthians set under? We're all sitting ducks at any given moment. It starts off as simple as this. Eve has God said. I mean, we, well, yeah, I think he did. I've talked to pastors who can tell me the three wise men's name. Okay, you know what? Ain't in there. I don't know how many wise men there was. I know that Herod was scared to death when they showed up. Okay? But he, I'm sitting there going, well, where'd you come up with them names? Well, everybody knows them. 
Well, I don't. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. Jesus fasted for 40 days. Okay? And then he went into the wilderness. All right? Satan came and he tempted him. How did he tempt him? Scripture. How did Jesus respond to the temptation? Why didn't he blast him? Why didn't he turn him into a charcoal briquette? Why didn't he say, you never know about the lake of fire? Let me express to you it. No. What did he do? He used scripture. What threatens the church is what sounds Christian. It sounds biblical. It sounds spiritual. Look at the effect that it had. Those who do damage to the bride of Christ are those who say they represent God. I represent Christ. They say they teach truth. Those who say they have a right interpretation. Those are deceivers who present themselves as Christian preachers and teachers and ministers. And they stroll into gullible churches claiming spiritual authority. What happened in Corinth, people? The false do this, the real damage to the church. And it comes from within the church. The Apostle Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. Ravenous wolves will come, not sparing the flock, even from among yourselves. Who was he speaking to? The church leadership. And if you go to 1 Timothy, you'll find he names two of them that he set outside to teach them not to blaspheme. That's the church in Ephesus. Who put the leadership in place in Ephesus? Who founded the church in Ephesus? Do you see what I'm trying to get at? Because, see, you and I say, well, you know, I read my Bible and I listen to the solid people. I don't listen to the clowns. Okay? And yet, I'm sitting there thinking, well, the Corinthians fell. The Ephesians fell. The seven churches of Asia Minor. I wonder who founded those. Being that they were Gentiles. And out of the seven churches, two are standing firm. And one was suffering, was under absolute insane persecution. I mean, they were running out of options. We're either going to walk with Jesus, we're just going to go to hell. These are trying to get at people. It's easy for you and I to say, well, yeah, but that was them. Well, who founded the church? The Bible warns us over and over and over. Will there always be false teachers? There always has been. There always will be until the church is taken out. Did I tell you that they might grow in number as we draw to the end? I was talking to my mom yesterday. When I first left Ohio and I came out here, I was 
sort of running from one to fall into another, or whatever it was I was trying to accomplish. And her, her thing for me was, when you get to Colorado, you got to find you a church. Okay, that was 70, 79, I think it was. When you get to Colorado, you got to find you a church. You know what? I cannot in good conscience tell that to people right now. Now think about that. I'm a pastor. How is it? You know what? I know some churches right now. If you go read their doctrinal statement, amen, brother. You go listen to what they're saying and you'll never hear the Bible mentioned. But your doctrinal statement was right. Now, when I, when I became the senior pastor here, they said, we need to clean up our doctrinal statement. And, and we did. <laughs> and I, they brought it to me. And they said, of course, I'm the pastor now. Clean up the doctrinal statement. And I said, well, let's just do this. The Bible is the authoritative word of God. And leave it at that. And they wouldn't let me do that. <laughs> so I had to go do whatever it is I did. And I started reading. Our doctrinal statement was 78 pages Thick. And I'm, and I mean, it was dealing with angels and just, well, gee. And I said, hey, this is, I don't need a novel. I, you know, I, I made it a little more simple than that. Uh, <laughs> actually, I made it a lot simple. It wasn't as simple as I wanted it. <laughs> you know, the Bible is the authoritative <laughs> word of God. Um, they wouldn't let me do that. But anyway. I read people's doctrinal statement, and you would say amen to a lot of these people that you read. And yet, if you go listen to what they're saying, they're not saying anything. They're not saying anything. They will grow in number as we get closer to the end. They will have a false gospel. They will have a false Jesus. They will have a false spirit. And they will be under the seducing spirits of the demonic horde speaking the doctrine of demons. And you know what? Men want it so. Men want it so. They are deceivers. They are deceived and they are stealing souls. That is what the Apostle Paul is dealing with in 2 Corinthians. And now he's starting to get specific about it. They come as deceivers. They profess truth. But by their attitudes and their behavior, they deny truth. You know what? They are everywhere. And they are there all the time. And they are unrelenting. Scripture is loaded with clear warnings, and yet the church is naive. The church is gullible. 2,000 years. Now, let me, because I, I, I ponder this. You know, I read 2 Corinthians. I've been reading it for a while. And I read this, and I think, how in the world did these people get to this big a mess? So I start looking around. I am 2,000 years out after Scripture. Scripture is canonized. Here it is. Thus saith the Lord. We have a refined theology today. It is all encompassed. It's all intact. We have amazing tools. You got computer programs that you can go into the Greek text and your computer will pronounce the word for you. 
You can get texts that give you the parsing of the verbs and the participles so you know exactly what was being said. We have amazing tools. We have amazing teachers. We have amazing insight. We should be the most discerning ever because we are the most able ever. We should be able to tell truth from error. We should have no problem. We should be the strongest generation ever. <laughs> Look around. How much deception is there? What happened? What happened? Well, you have a very powerful adversary who is extraordinarily clever. And he is subtle as a breeze. He is stealthy and he is seductive. And he loves to tickle ears. And Christians are very, very, very gullible. Listen, Christians find it extraordinarily hard today that anyone who is nice, anyone who is friendly, charming, speaks fluid Christianese, clever, they would never, ever be hypocritical. Actors, that's impossible. Nobody in their right mind would even do that. And yet, what happens when you find one who is, and you smile at him and says, but I believe, sir, that you're speaking the doctrine of demons. Well, make them kind of statements, you're being divisive. Whereas the unity of the body. Why? Because we have an absence of discernment. Why? Why don't we call it what it is? We are so gullible, we are ripe for the schemes of the devil. And I just look around and think, golly. And you know what? He is excruciatingly effective in seducing the church. And you know what? That's what happened to Corinth. It's what happened in Ephesus, Laodicea, Sardis, not Philadelphia. Although I've been in Philadelphia and I don't think there's a lot of brotherly love there. But anyway. This section shows and warns us how clever our enemy is. Okay, He will play the game. Okay, And you know what is really neat about him? He don't care who makes the rules. If you are not discerning, you will be deceived. Okay, listen, this section is now an antidote on how to keep from being seduced. False are there. The false are successful. Paul realized that they were there in Corinth and he also was concerned and he knew that he needed to reestablish their trust in him. Okay, why? Because they had doubts. Just throw a doubt in. It don't have all you have to do is say it. And you don't have to have any proof about anything. You can just say it. That's all you have to do. Terry's not loving. I was walking downtown and he drove by and he didn't wave at me. I, brothers and sisters, you cannot believe how simple it is. Just throw it out there. 
It doesn't matter what it is, just say it. I, I remember one time, it's been, uh, I think it was last spring, that someone made you come. I saw Terry with a different girl, a blonde. She was in his truck. I saw him, he was downtown. It was my daughter. So I told my daughter, from now on, you're riding in the back. <laughs> I, I mean, how silly is that? But they just, just let's just say it. He was with a blonde woman. I don't, I, I don't even understand that. That's just mind-boggling to me. But that's all it takes. False are there. They had been successful in Corinth. Paul realized this. His apostleship was in question. And he knew that he needed to get them back because if they start turning away from him, then they are turning away from the truth. They are also turning away from God. They're also turning away from the gospel. They're also turning away from Christ. Other than that, it's not really that big a problem. This letter is to bring them back. Bring them back to the authority of who Christ is. They wanted to focus on His... uh, He wants them to focus on His... Authority, if you look at the end of of chapter 10, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, verse 10, and his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. Why? Because that's what they're looking at. That's the issue now? The Apostle Paul had a mission. He had a passion for these people. Now he's in chapter 11, and he's dealing directly, point blank, face to face, mano a mano, with the false. And everybody reading this letter is going to know that. Why? He saves it to the end of the letter. Chapter 11 to the middle of 12, basically he compares himself to the false. What does a true servant of Christ look like? What does a false look like? And that's what he does in this text. It's helpful because it gives us a framework that we can kind of model by which we can compare people. How does it look? If you look at your outline there, you see the mark of a true. They are humble. Immersed in truth. Overwhelmed by love. False. Or prideful. Boastful. They are deceptive. Hippocrates. And they are abusive to the body of Christ. The Apostle Paul is trying to explain to him that if you are disloyal to me, then you are disloyal to God. You are disloyal to Christ. You are disloyal to the gospel. And you are disloyal to truth. Other than that, it's really not that big a deal. And that's how he started this out with spiritual loyalty. We've been looking at that. And he contrasts himself basically to these false ones. And that's how he opens this up in 7 through 15. For such men, verse 13 says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Bang! He compares and contrasts. What? Humility and pride. Sacrifice and greed. Integrity, hypocrisy, love and using people. It's contrast. 
those who lovingly, humbly proclaim truth, and those who hatefully, deceptively abuse the church. Next week, I want to step into a topic that just everybody that I've ever dealt with loves to hear, and they love to spend as much time in it as they can. Look at our society. You know what the topic is? Humility. It is so odd to see it because it is so stinking rare. The mark of the true is they are humble, truthful, loving. The mark of the false is that they are prideful, deceptive, and abusive. Okay? Simple question for you. Where are you? Because humility stands out. Because it's like I said, it's so so rare. And we will spend some time dealing with uh, an amazing topic. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Apostle Paul. And Father, as I look at this and I see the church throughout history and her humility. And yet, Father, sometimes in the name of unity, she becomes gullible. Father, let none of us fall into that. Father, may we be servants who rightly handle truth. Father, we may understand. Father, one, one, the seriousness of rightly dividing it. But Father, the danger of not. Help us to hear, Lord. Help us to walk in the mercy and grace that is in Christ Jesus Help us to be overwhelmed with your privilege of being children of the Most High God. Father, none of us here are adequate for anything. Clay pots, earthen vessels. Father, I beg you, as we move into the next weeks and months, we'll be overwhelmed with this privilege that we have. Father, that we would also Understand the danger that lurks all around us. Father, may we stand in your grace that is in Christ Jesus. May we be overwhelmed by your presence, by your blessings. Father, may we walk in a manner worthy of our calling. To you, my Lord, my Savior, my King, Christ's name. Amen.